Hello and welcome. This is the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy, my spectacular co-host, with me today. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. I just finished uh, a legit hardcore almost two-hour workout on the bike this morning, and Whoa. my legs are dead. Are you insane? Did you go crazy between last episode and this oh, one? I don't know that I ever have been not crazy. <laughs> Okay, what is the purpose of this two-hour bike ride? Just, can you, can so you I have, like, an synopsis? indoor trainer, and it's basically, like, you can ride through, like, training programs, and it basically turns your bike into, like, a spin class. So if you don't want to ride outside, you can just do it inside. That almost said, like, it turns your bike into a spank class. <laughs> nope. Nope. Like. I don't know if they have classes for that, but I definitely <laughs> didn't sign up for any of those. And I definitely don't pay twelve ninety nine sure. for it. <laughs> I'm sure it hurts your ass just as much. It doesn't feel <laughs> to great. Ride the bike as it does. It doesn't feel great. Um, yeah. What, so, so what's the purpose behind this? I don't know. I mean, I'm doing this like just training program of just. I mean, I just wanted a good workout. Um, so the and and it has like different programs that you do every day or every other day or what what have you. And today that was. That was on the schedule. It was like interval training for an hour and 45 minutes. Okay, so when I say what the purpose is, what I kind of mean behind that is I basically work out not for the same reason that I think many people work out. A lot of people work out because they're like, hey, I want to have this fantastic body or I want to be in shape or I want to be stronger. I work out so I can eat and drink whatever the fuck I want. Oh, I I work out because I like the way it feels. Like, I know that's crazy, but I just like the way it feels to have exercised. I like feeling... Like that, that feeling when your legs feel like drained or whatever, you know, like when you've had a really good hard workout, I like that feeling. So I don't know, maybe I'm crazy. I probably am. You're one of those girls like on, um, did you ever watch Legally Blonde? The movie? Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the girl was like, exercise gives you endorphins. Endorphins make you happy. Happy people don't murder others. <laughs> well, that's, I don't do, I definitely don't do it for the endorphins. I like the, like the fatigued feeling. It feels like I've earned it, mm. I guess. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, well, I've earned a beer or seven. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to have seven beers, I'm going to have seven beers. I don't need to work out before I'm going to do I just that. feel really guilty if I don't work out before I have a massive, mm. um, pretty much binge of food or alcohol. So, oh, that's maybe that's my thing. No, I'm fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to dive into a little bit of a topic today that is kind of controversial. And it's not I, I, I realize I always say that before episodes. This is controversial. This is controversial. But this one. But this, this one piss some people <laughs> off, I feel like, because nah, we're going right. to talk a little bit about the Vatican and some murders that have happened in and around the Vatican that people kind of have some speculations as to the Vatican possibly being involved in some criminal elements. I'm going to start it off today talking about the disappearance of a young girl named Mirella Gregori. And then I'm going to hand it over to Darcy, who's going to elaborate a little further on some speculation as to possible reasons behind the disappearance of this young girl and another one. This particular girl that we're talking about was born October 7th, 1967, and she disappeared in Rome in May 1983, about 40 days before the disappearance of another young girl. Both of these girls were citizens of Vatican City. 
and both of the disappearances are unsolved as of today. So this young girl left her house telling her mother she had a date with a former schoolmate and has not been seen since. During a visit of the Pope to a Rome parish on December 15, 1985, the young girl's mother recognized a man in the papal escort as the person who often came to pick up her daughter at the house. This man was identified as Raul Bonarelli. But this is not the same person they think she went on, on the date with. Is that right? No. But he is somehow connected because the mother recognized him as having picked her daughter up on other occasions. They don't really know what happened to the girl after she left the house because there is not really a whole lot of evidence. No one saw her with anybody else. No one saw her getting into a car or anything of that nature. Some remains were found in October of 2018 thought to possibly be those of Morella, but this was not proven conclusively. Now, this particular case is interesting because this was just an ordinary girl in and around Vatican City who disappeared mysteriously and they have no clue what happened to her. She has been missing for 36 years, two months, and approximately so many days. She was about 15 years old when she disappeared. She was ordinary and average by all accounts, went to school, was a student, there really isn't a whole ton of information about her. She seemed like an average, everyday, ordinary young girl in mm -hmm. Rome at that time. Why don't you tell us about this other young girl who disappeared and maybe give us a little bit more details? Yeah, so unfortunately, there's not a whole lot about Mariella, but the reason that we brought it up is that it happened just over a month before Emanuela Orlandi disappeared. And now this is the name that you've probably been hearing in the news a lot recently. So she was also 15 years old and she went missing in Rome on June 22nd, 1983. Her father was an employee of the Vatican Bank and she lived in Vatican City with her family, just like Mariella. Emanuela had just finished her second year of high school in Rome and she was taking flute lessons in Rome over the summer. So the day that she disappeared, June 22nd, she left her family's apartment in Vatican City and took the bus to St. Apollinaire, Apollinare, I guess, in Rome for a music lesson. Now, this is part of the Pontifical Technical College, and that's going to come up a little bit later. So she was, it's kind of, depending on which story you read, it's a little bit iffy about what happens here, but it appears that she was late to the class, and she later told her sister on the phone that the reason she was late is that she was stopped on her way to class by a representative who wanted her to sell Avon products. So her sister said, you know, talk it over with our parents before you make any decisions if you're going to sell this. And Emanuela also supposedly talked about the job offer with a friend after class while they were walking to the bus stop. So she took a bus into and out of Vatican City um, on her way to these music lessons. And depending on which article you read, she was either seen talking to a man in a green BMW on the way to her music lessons. This is sometimes described as the person who offered her the job. Or she was last seen getting into a green BMW after her music lesson. So there's, it, it's a little unclear, and there's a couple different sources on that. But either way, she, has never, she never made it home from her music lesson. Okay. So... 
The day after she disappeared, her parents officially reported her missing to the police. And because it was 1983, and apparently this was a thing that happened worldwide, the police suggested that her parents wait because she maybe just had run off with some friends. So over the next few days, her disappearance was being reported in the local newspapers. And on June 25th of 1983, her parents received a phone call from a boy who claimed to be a 16-year-old named Pierre Luigi. And he reported that he and his fiance, which 16 seems very young for your fiance, that they had met Emanuela at the Piazza Navona Square that afternoon. And he was able to accurately describe her flute, her hair, and her glasses. And he claimed that she introduced herself as Barbarella. Hmm. He also claimed that she had just run away from home and was selling Avon products. So it seems as if he had a pretty accurate description of Emanuela. And what I don't know is if the information about Avon was included in the information about her disappearance. But if not, if that wasn't something that was widely known, this, you know, seems like it's a pretty credible lead, right? Yeah. On... June 28th, three days later, a man calling himself Mario called the family and said a girl calling herself Barbara came into his bar and confided in him that she was a fugitive from home, which is an interesting word. I don't know why, if you had run away, I don't know why you'd use the term fugitive, um, but maybe that's maybe just there a translational. A, a, yeah, I was just going to say, maybe yeah. that's a translational error because it wasn't Italy. Right. So she she said she'd run away from home, but she's planning to return for her sister's wedding. Now, I also don't know if her sister was getting was planning to be married at that time. So it this is this is kind of presented as if this is a credible biographical lead at the time. So perhaps mm-hmm. that's true, but it doesn't say in the articles. Mario also claimed that she was selling Avon cosmetics and she was selling them with another woman. And so This is about the time that the family starts receiving hundreds of prank calls and they contained, you know, cryptic messages about their daughter and prank calls and things like that. But none of the leads actually led anywhere. So on July 3rd, Pope John Paul II made an appeal for her return after a public prayer. And this is the first time that anyone had publicly mentioned the idea that she was kidnapped. So it seems as if, you know, the Pope has, but by the Pope mentioning it, it seems like it's an official theory now that she has been kidnapped. Hmm. Two days later, the family received a call from someone claiming they would return Emanuela in exchange for the release of Mehmet Ali Aja. And Aja was a Turkish terrorist who had attempted to assassinate Pope John Paul II in 1981. Oh, geez. So this is... There, there are so many rabbit holes in this in this thing. And this is kind of our first link of something bigger than just a standard abduction, right? Yeah. So in the following days, there are a lot of other calls being received by the family, including one from a man that they identified as the American because he had an American accent. Um, he played a recording of Emanuela's voice over the phone. And he also led police to a copy of Emanuela's school registration card and the sheet music that she was playing the day she went missing. A few hours later, the American called again and again suggested an exchange of Emanuela for Aja. And the American also mentioned Mario and Pierluigi and identified them as members of this same organization. So it seems as if all three of these people are linked. 
And so on July 6th, a man with a Middle Eastern accent called Emanuela's classmates and said that Emanuela was with him and they had 20 days to make this exchange for Aja. And he also asked for a direct line with the Vatican Secretary of State, which was granted, which seems very... I mean, it's incredibly unusual. Like, her father worked for the Vatican Bank, but it wasn't as if he was a high-level politician. You know, I mean, like, it wouldn't seem as if the kidnapping of his daughter would be enough to grant somebody a link, a line, direct line to the Secretary of State. But Right. Which makes you think something else, something else is going on. Right. And so the line was installed, and 16 calls were made by the American to the Secretary of State from different payphones throughout Rome. But in October of that year, 1983, all communication stopped. And that's the last that has happened in her case. So let's talk about some theories here. So the first theory, obviously, is this terrorist group, which Mehmet Aja was a part. And this is called this is a group called the Gray Wolves. So this theory is that they kidnapped Emanuela to demand a prisoner exchange. A member of the Grey Wolves gave a prison interview in which he said that Emanuela was alive and living in a cloistered convent. And if you don't know, a cloistered convent is a convent where there are nuns and monks, but the nuns are completely separated from the public. They do not interact with anybody other than each other. And they are behind like a like a gilded wall. It's like with metal bars and stuff like that. It's not a jail. But anyway, they're completely sequestered. There was no further information on this lead, though. So in 2000, Judge Ferdinando and mm, this is a tough, a tough name. Judge Ferdinando Imposimato declared that based on what he had heard, he believed that Emanuela was was living a perfectly integrated life in the Muslim community and that Aja was released from prison in 2006 after receiving a pardon from the Italian president. Now, remember, he tried to assassinate the Pope, and he was sentenced to life in prison, and then he gets pardoned by the Italian president. Okay. And in 2010, Aja himself claimed that the Vatican organized the assassination attempt of the Pope and kidnapped Emanuela to keep as a prisoner for Aja, which kind of leads me to think, like, all right, well, this guy's crazy like he was crazy because he tried to assassinate the pope but like this is crazy he also claimed that she was living in a monastery in central europe and that her family could see her whenever they wanted but she's not allowed to leave the monastery so my personal opinion of this particular theory is that this organization was not involved they just kind of took an advantage of an opportune moment to get some publicity and try and get Mehmet aja out of prison what do you think I, that sounds more likely to me than there actually being something else going on. Yeah. So the other theory is that this was an organized crime operation. A man named Antonio Mancini is a former member of the mafia group Banda della Magliana, and he implied that Emanuela's kidnapping was one of a number of strikes the gang was making against the Vatican in order to force the restitution of large amounts of money they had lent to the Vatican Bank through Roberto Calvi's Banco Ambrosiano. So this will take you down 
some crazy ass Wikipedia links. So I'm gonna try and cover it kind of as succinctly as I can, but you're just gonna have to bear with me. So, Roberto Calvi, he was chairman of the Vatican Bank at the time. And in 1978, the Bank of Italy found that the Vatican Bank had exported several billion lire illegally. And Calvi was tried in 1981 and was given a four-year suspended sentence and fined almost 20 million American dollars for transferring millions of dollars out of the country. He was also reportedly a member of Propaganda Due, which is an exiled Masonic lodge in Italy, and they also call themselves P2. And investigators believe that some of the money that was illegally exported from the Vatican Bank went directly to this P2 organization. And this is a really interesting group. You can look them up. There's a whole lot of just crazy. I mean, it's like, it, you know, if you want to get into Freemason stuff and how all that works, this is where you'd want to go. Um, the members include notable politicians, including Silvio Berlusconi, who was the prime minister of Italy not too long ago, and it also included members of the mafia. It basically sounds like the Italian version of the Bohemian Grove. I don't know if you've heard of that group. No. It is a group of politicians and business people who get together in California, and it's, I don't to me it sounds like they get together and have a retreat where they can not have to worry about everybody commenting on what they do every single day and every minute of their lives. But some people think it's like a secret organization that like runs the new world order. So it's one of those conspiracy theory things. But anyway, Banco uh, Ambrosiano collapsed in June of 1982 following the discovery of debts between 700 million and $1.5 billion. So much of the money had been siphoned through the Vatican bank and the Vatican Bank owned 10% of Banco Ambrosiano, and it was their, they were their main shareholder. Two weeks before the bank collapsed, Roberto Calvi wrote a letter to Pope John Paul II warning that the collapse of the bank would provoke a catastrophe of unimaginable proportions in which the church will suffer the greatest damage. It was never confirmed that the Vatican Bank was directly involved with exporting this money, but the bank did agree to pay $224 million to 120 of Banco or Banco Ambrosiano's creditors as a, quote, recognition of moral involvement. All right. Why does this have anything to do with anything? So Roberto Calvi was released on bail pending an appeal of his conviction. And during this time, he fled to London under a false passport. And on June 18th of 1982, so this is a year prior to... Emanuela's disappearance, Roberto Calvi's body was found hanging from a scaffolding beneath the Blackfriars Bridge. And supposedly, members of Propaganda Due referred to themselves as the Blackfriars. So, hmm. two coroner's inquests were performed in the UK. The first found that he committed suicide. The second resulted in an open verdict, which means they couldn't determine a cause of death. And his family contends that he was murdered. And they hired the security firm Kroll Associates, which is really interesting because it's owned by Nick Kroll's father. I don't know if you know Nick Kroll. He's a comedian. No. I think he's hilarious. He did, he did Big Mouth on Netflix. Anyway, so they hired Kroll Associates to investigate. And Kroll Associates found that he could not have hanged himself because there was a lack of paint and rust on his shoes, meaning that he did not walk on the scaffolding under the bridge from which he supposedly jumped. So, 
Supposedly, this propaganda due group killed Roberto Calvi, and they were involved with the mafia, with some of their members, and the mafia kidnapped Emanuela to hold her for ransom for some of the money that they lost in this Banco Ambrosiano collapse. The Banco Ambrosiano is also linked to American Archbishop Paul Mar- Marcinkus, or Marcinkus. He served as the president of the Vatican Bank from 1971 to 1989. There's also a theory that Emanuela was kidnapped on his orders, again, through this ransom scandal involving the bank. He was involved in the scandal, the Banco Ambrosiano scandal, through his involvement with Roberto Calvi, and he also was a known associate of some mafia members. And he died, I believe, in 2013-ish. So that is one of the organized crime theories. Another one says that in 2005, an anonymous call was made to an Italian television program that said the grave of Enrico de Pettis contained evidence that would help the police explain Emanuela's disappearance. And a former girlfriend of DePettis said that in 2008, he once confessed to her that he was involved in, in Emanuela's kidnapping. The girlfriend said that, he, the, that the kidnapping was ordered by Marcinkus to send a message and that she was later killed. And DePettis is kind of an interesting guy because after he was murdered in 1990, his body was buried in the St. Apollinare Basilica, which is owned by the Vatican. So this mafia boss, essentially, was approved to be buried in a Vatican-owned cemetery, which traditionally only allows clerics of the Catholic Church to be buried there. So that is interesting. Why would a very well-known criminal be allowed to be buried there, right? Mm-hmm. So this burial was approved by Cardinal Ugo Paletti, and he was also a Freemason and supposedly in Propaganda Due. He supposedly authorized DePettis to be buried in the Basilica Cemetery because he was influential in persuading other mafia members to stop the strikes against the Vatican. In 2012, after this letter was received, his tomb was opened and bones were removed to determine if Manuela was buried in the tomb. She was not found there. And they actually, the church used this opportunity to remove his body from the basilica and his body was cremated as ashes were scattered at sea. So, where are we now? In 2017, a document was stolen from an armored cabinet inside the Vatican. And this document suggested that the Vatican may have been directly involved in Emanuela's disappearance. The document was supposedly written by a cardinal and addressed to two archbishops, and it was titled A Summary of Expenses Sustained by Vatican City State for the Activities Related to Citizen Emanuela Orlandi and in parentheticals, Rome, January 14, 1968, which is her birth date. This document's essentially a running tab of charges incurred between 1983, the year she disappeared, and 1997, totaling almost $300,000. And the itemized list includes transfers, room and board in London and in other places, and various medical expenses, including for a gynecologist. Whoa. Yeah. And, I mean, that could have been just like, a, a woman's health checkup or maybe there was a pregnancy you know what i mean like that doesn't say oh, but shit. this list also included a number of items related to vatican funded investigations to find her the cardinal who wrote the document died in 2013 
and one of the archbishops to whom the document was addressed claimed to have never seen the document before. And the Vatican says that the document was a complete forgery, but that opens the question of why it was in an armored cabinet. Right. Like, that, that, that's confirmed. Like, it was stolen from an armored cabinet by a reporter. So it, that's, that is confirmed that it was in this armored cabinet. So if it's a forgery, why do they have this locked up? Exactly. You know? And so this is really fucking fishy. Like, this is like... I don't know. So... In 2018, remains were found during the renovation of the Holy See Embassy to Italy, which is located in Rome. And obviously, this is what kind of reopened the public speculation about Emanuela's and Mariella's disappearances. And the reason that, that this opened the speculation is that the remains were believed to be of a woman's size and stature of about 15 years old. So... On February 1st, 2019, results showed that the remains belonged to a Roman man who had died between 190 and 230 AD. So that makes sense as to why they would think that it was a 15-year-old woman is because it was a man from 200 AD, right? So they were, people were considerably smaller, stature them. I don't understand in this one, and, and correct me if I'm like just way off here, but like how they could confuse like a body that's that old with one that's like 30 years old. Like, that makes no fucking sense to me. Well, once it's skeletal, it's, I mean, it's, it would take like laboratory tests to age them. You wouldn't right, push by sight. Thousands of years them. old versus 30 years old. Don't you think there's going to be a significant difference in the skeletal structure from uh, that much of a difference in time lapse? Uh-uh. uh-uh. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's just me then. Never mind. No, I mean, we've pretty much just gotten bigger. Like, <laughs> that's, the, that's the difference. In July 2019, the Vatican announced that it would open two tombs that were supposed to contain the remains of two 19th century princesses. And this was because a letter was received by the family that said, look where the angel points in this Pontifical Technical University uh, cemetery. There is a, a statue of an angel, and it's, like, right above a tomb, and it's kind of holding a book, but it looks like it's kind of pointing down directly to the tomb below it. So this kind of sounds like a Dan Brown level, you know, right. clue or whatever. It's like so, some fucking Da Vinci Code bullshit. Exactly. And which is why some of the stuff is so believable is because the Vatican Church has been known to cover up um, a, a, a malfeasance or two. Well, um, that's because Dan, Dan Brown primed us. To know there's some wicked shit going on there. I mean, to <laughs> be, be fair, Sinead O'Connor primed us. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. tore up that picture. <laughs> but. Or, you know, all the cases of the hidden sex abuse with young boys and children. Well, that's what she that was doing. That's us. what she was protesting was Sinead O'Connor when she tore up that picture. Yeah. Um, it's just we didn't know about it at the time. Crazy shit. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. But anyway, so they opened up these tombs. And they were going to determine if the remains, you know, were Emanuela's or if they were just the princesses. But twist, there were actually no remains found in the tombs. Not even the princesses. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So (laughs) that kind of became another question. Where are these women? So now we're looking for four women, right? Where did the Um, princesses go? So the church and the, the... the cemetery was renovated in the 60s and 70s, and so they started kind of looking other places to see if somehow the remains got moved somewhere else. And in this search, they uncovered two sets of bones near the tombs. 
and they have not done any testing yet to confirm the identities, but it would it sounds to me as if these are the two princesses that went missing. It doesn't sound to me as if this is going to be Emanuela and Mariella's remains, but they also found beneath the floor in an area inside the Pontifical Technical University, which is where the cemetery is also located, they found two ossuaries. And an ossuary is a container or room in which the bones of dead people are placed. So they did find two sets of Ramones and they found two ossuaries. And this is closed by a trap door. So where it stands right now, and this is as of like two days ago when I looked this up, the Vatican officials have expressed an intention to formally open the trap door for further investigation, but that's all we have right now. So they have still not found Emanuela's remains, but it has opened up a whole other mess of questions about the Vatican, what they know, what they're hiding. It sounds to me as if this, this letter that was like the running tab, it sounds to me like that is probably the biggest credible lead, you know? Yeah. What do you and, think? I mean, I think that the Catholic Church in general and just churches in general in the past years have there's been a lot of shit that's come up that they've hidden. There's been a lot of bad behavior that they've hidden. There's been a lot of abuse of children, minors, all kinds of shit that has happened with the church. I would not be surprised if there was some sort of procurement going on for priests, for uh, members of the church of girls ladies whatever the case may be so that they could have sex like a trafficking ring yeah i firmly believe that the human body was not created to be celibate and when you put thousands and thousands of men and women in situations where they're forced into celibacy and when i say forced into celibacy many of these men did choose to be priests right but some of them do not That's a family tradition that they become priests or, you know, there's something else that puts them into the position where they feel like they have to do that for their family or for whoever. And then they're forced into a life of celibacy, which I don't think is natural. I really don't. And then when you put these people into positions where they're not allowed to have sex, then you have all sorts of bad behavior that starts to pop up because sexual frustration is a real fucking thing. Yeah. Well, and then you add on to that. That it's forbidden, you know what I mean? Like you yeah. make it more enticing by saying, you and then they hide it, this. and then crime becomes an element in it because they're hiding it by doing all sorts of criminal acts to hide the behavior that's not allowed by the church. So, I think it just lends itself to a sort of environment where you just have all kinds of shitty, shady, awful things going on. Yeah, and it's interesting, and not to get too much into, you know the the sex scandal with with, where where priests were abusing primarily you know primarily young boys but young children um it's interesting that it's circular because i don't know does it does the job attract people who pedophiles well just attract people with those um Sexual deviant people. Yeah. Sexual deviant people. I think that there are certain cases where people with sexual deviancies, where people did think, oh, hey, the church is going to be able to fix this. Sure. Let's get them into the church and the church can fix it. And if I have to do something where I'm celibate, that then will fix me. Right. Yeah. That's believable. You know, that's, uh, it's a good try. 
right? But not always the best fix for someone with psychological, mental, or emotional problems, right? Yeah. They need help. They need counseling. They need psychologist help. They need, some of them need drugs. Yeah. Need physical drugs to help them with their issues. And it's just, it's an awful, awful, awful thing that so much of this happened within the church because it has completely changed the way people see religion and religious life. Which is unfortunate because I don't I don't think all aspects of it are bad. And this is not something that is recent to our lifetimes. Like you can go back and look. There were popes that had children. Like yeah. that's documented yeah. fact. So this is not something that's new. This is this is not something that is um, novel. Unique to our generation. Exactly. It's not unique to our generation. It isn't. And again, we do, we want to emphasize that this does not mean that we are taking a stand to say everything in the church is bad and that the church is awful and you should never be participating in the church or religion or anything of that nature. That is not what we are implying no, or not saying at all. because there are a lot of very good and noble tenets of religion within the United States and within the world in general. But in this instance, it just seems as though absolute power corrupts absolutely when you and have an, an organization it's an institution that is built upon secrecy when you have an institution that controls everything owns the land controls the people on it and makes a shit ton of money from it mm-hmm. then you're asking for trouble and if i understood more money things like there's a lot of vatican bank scandals out there like this is far from the only one you know what i mean so this there there is that other level of of secrecy of scandal of cover-ups. In, in multiple other areas besides right. just sexual procurement of, of girls for sexual nature, yeah. for uh, activities of a sexual nature. So do you think that the, the disappearances of Mariella and Emanuela are related? Yes. Yeah. I lean toward that, too. I, I wish there was more information on Mariella. I think there was some sort of deviant behavior involved in it, and I think it was covered up. And I think that much like they covered up the sexual abuse of the children against other priests and people within the church, they covered this up as well. Yeah. So um, that's my opinion. That's not a fact. Nothing is proven. They haven't found these girls. So we, right. we want to make that absolutely clear as well. Do you think um, that Emanuela is still alive as, a, as this like, no. dossier would, would have you no. believe? I think she's dead. Yeah. I think she, once, they, once they used her up, so to speak... Once they found their use for her and sexually abused her and, and she started to get older, they were done with her and they killed yeah. her. Yeah, this this list does um, stop in 1997. So maybe that could be, you know, the last date that they were taking care of her in whatever sense you would have. It's that. very sad. It's very, very sad because none of these young women chose this lifestyle. None of these young women chose for any of this to happen. None of these young yeah. women did anything that would increase the likelihood for them to be involved in something like this. They didn't put themselves at risk. They just were yanked off the street and right. This was created, you know, it's awful, but, um, we really do need to jump into the second case so that we have enough time to talk about it. This is a very interesting case as well. It is not necessarily a Vatican case, but the church is involved a little bit in this particular case. And this is the case of Danilo Restivo. Very, very interesting case. It is a little bit more recent than the ones that Darcy started out with. This gentleman was born in 1972, April 3rd, and was an Italian man. He was about 40 years old when this whole thing happened. A little bit of background here. He was born in Sicily and was living with his parents and his older sister in southern Italy when this whole thing went down. He would attempt to arrange dates with girls by claiming to have a present for them. Mm, Creepy. Right? 
So it's my understanding that from the people that lived in this town, he was just off. And he came yeah. from, you know, a somewhat prominent family within the neighborhood. So they just kind of everybody tolerated him. And they just I think they thought he was innocent and that he was just mentally off and that he was no danger to anyone. So uh-huh. they just kind of like, oh, that's Restivo doing his thing. Yeah. So they just kind of let it go. But he started harassing those girls that rejected him with phone calls in which he would play a soundtrack of a particular film about a serial killer. Oh my god! Plays a melody before each murder, so there's a song. <gasps> Can you from the imagine film, getting that phone call? Right, and how fucking creepy fuck? that would be. So many of these girls that he harassed by playing that music for called the police. They were just like, "Hey, this is not right," and so he was known to the police who believed him to be responsible for nine separate incidents in which women had their hair cut clandestinely. So he was very interesting. They said that he would travel throughout the countryside on buses and trains and subways and so forth and surreptitiously kind of cut women's hair when they weren't that is so that skis me out so hard. I don't like other people's hair. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to interact with it. That's disgusting. Right? So he just kind of had why. this fetish. He loved hair and he would just cut little snippets of women's hair from public places when they weren't Some of them knew that he did it cuz they caught him, but many of them did not know he was cutting their hair. That's so fucked up. Like you get home and you like you have a big chunk workout, of the you back take a of shower hair, and you're it, like, right? "What the f- Fuck. What the actual fuck? Oh I'm missing God. a seven-inch chunk of hair out of the back of my hair. But anyway, oh um, he is also have thought to have tied up two children before cutting one with a knife. Oh, Jesus However, Christ. the magistrate refused to issue an arrest warrant until about four months later when they took him into custody. An Italian policeman who questioned him at that time described him as cunning and very precise in his answers. So although he may kind of been perceived huh. as this somewhat childish and maybe... Um, mentally have a little bit of mental challenge. He was actually very smart. And when when did, when was were the were these happening? This was in about the '90s. So this started happening. Okay. Um, the the arrest warrant for him was not issued until 1994. Okay. Okay. So at that point. Elisa Claps was a 16-year-old no. daughter of a tobaccoist and a clerk, and she was an honor student and a devoted Catholic. She was very ambitious and wanted to become a physician and work with the Medicine Sans Farantires. She was the youngest of three children and was described as very close to her family. Friends reported that she felt sorry for Restivo because, you know, he kind of was this perceived as the simpleton sort of a thing. And she yeah. said that he appeared lonely and depressed. So she felt bad for him and, and sort of took it upon herself to be nice to him. And she wrote several pages in her secret diary, though, complaining about his odd behavior. Despite her misgivings, she agreed to meet with him in the 15th century church in the center of the city. After God, that just sounds ominous. Like, it's probably just a completely normal thing in Italy, but it's like, let's meet in this 15th century church. And, and it does and seem odd sounds... that she would say, hey, I'm going to meet him at this church when he's been exhibiting all this yeah. very odd behavior towards me. But in any case, it was this old 15th century church within the city that a lot of people were probably going in and out of because it was probably an operating church because that's how it is in in Europe. There are many, many, many old, old, old churches where people go in and out of and they pray and there's crowds of people. So she probably felt somewhat safe. I mean, if you were going to go meet somebody you weren't sure about, like I would, I'd probably recommend a church. Like let's meet at a church or outside a police department. So it probably allayed some of her fears and he had actually phoned her and asked for a date 
And she was not concerned because he pretended he had a love match for a friend of hers and was asking for suggestions. Okay, so he was like, hey, I want to match up one of your friends with one of my friends. Let's get together. Let's chat. This won't be a big deal. Everything's going to be okay. I've got this little gift for you where it's just going to be just a super cash meeting and it's at the church. So you have nothing to worry about. So on Sunday, Claps, Miss Elisa, accompanied by a female friend, went to meet with Recibo at the church, arriving at approximately 1130 a.m. just as mass has ended. So, again, people coming in and out. Lots of activity. She probably yeah. wasn't all that worried. So at some point, she became separated from her friend that went with her to the church. Her friend probably said, hey, you know, go meet with them. I'll meet you right back here. I'm just going to run over to this shop or I'm going to go say a quick prayer or light a candle or whatever. And so somehow those two girls got separated. But mm-hmm. she never returned home. And when she didn't return home, her older brother, Gildo, telephoned Restivo's family residence and was told that Restivo was out of town due to university essays and had no knowledge of Clapp's whereabouts. So her family was aware that she was supposed to be meeting this guy at the church, right? People, were, people knew mm-hmm. that she was supposed to be meeting him. But then when the family called and said, hey, what the fuck? Where's Restivo? Like, he was supposedly with our daughter. They were all denying it and said, hey, we don't know where... Elisa is. We have no idea what happened with this, but he's out of town. So when the older brother went to the church, he discovered the priest in charge had suddenly left for some days, taking with him the only key giving access to the upper story of the church building. So additionally, this same priest in charge, his name was Domingo Sabia, opposed a search of the church. Very, very interesting. So he said, no, you can't just search the church. Gildo, the older brother, reported the disappearance of his sister to the police, but was initially told the matter had no urgency. And this is another issue that I think we ran into with the other two girls that disappeared earlier, is at that particular time period, it was perceived that if a young girl left or disappeared, that she had run away. Right. She was doing drugs, or she was promiscuous, or she had run away and decided she wanted to do her own thing. She was rebellious and just being independent and whatever and not worrying. Right. Don't worry about it. So when a police questioned Recibo, he fell into a near hysterical state, then admitted that he and Claps had spent some time together discussing the girl he had fallen in love with. So he said, yeah, I did meet up with her, but I was talking about some other girl. He then told them that Claps left the church while he had stayed to pray. He added that she had seemed frightened and had confided in him that she'd been harassed by a boy before entering the church. Later that day, he said he had gone to Naples where he was a freshman at the facility of dentistry. So he was a dental student. Recibo claimed to have hurt his hand while taking a shortcut through the building site. Okay. No, no, you didn't. That's a lie. (laughs) Scratches, cuts, injuries to a person who supposedly is a suspect in a murder investigation. (laughs) Come on. Come yeah. the fuck on. They always have a, a, an excuse as to why they have a gouge out of their face. But 10 times right. out of 10, it's because you fucking killed her and she fought back. Anyway, yeah, it's not coincidental. We digress. Okay, so he cut his hand while walking through this forest, whatever. The Restivo family declined the policeman's request for clothes Receiva had worn on the Sunday morning that was in question. So we're not giving you any of the clothes he was wearing. Get the fuck out of here. And the fiancé of Recibo's sister, a young man named Giovanni M., told the police that Recibo had looked terrified about the little cut on his hand and had insisted on being accompanied to the emergency room. He said that Recibo's jacket looked very dirty and soaked with blood. So... All this from a cut on his hand? Yeah. And, like, little things are just going back and forth. Little red flags are popping up everywhere. 
So Klopp's disappearance was the subject of intense media interest and speculation. There was an assumption that Klopp's had subsequently left the church and moved the focus of the investigation away from the church building and onto other lines of inquiry. And, and because that was the case, the church wasn't even thoroughly searched. They didn't get a warrant. They didn't search the premise. They just were like, hey, she went somewhere else. Let's go check all these other locations. Let's focus on something else. Klopp's friend, who had accompanied her to the church on the day of her disappearance, told investigators that she had seen Klopp's outside the church at about 11.30 a.m. At that point, Klopp's had departed to meet Restivo in the church. So she took off and went into the church. The other girl went off and did whatever. And she claimed Klaps had told her she'd be back in about half an hour. Prosecutors accused the friend of lying and suspected her of involvement in the disappearance. Why would they suspect her but not him? I don't know. They also asserted she had seen, been seen with Klaps later that day. The young woman, who was about 16 at the time, later confessed to several friends she was worried that she could have met the same destiny as Klaps if she had been with her. Wow. So some people speculated that she had been abducted by criminals and again, this is in Italy, right? Mm-hmm. Klaps's diary also had pages missing, suggesting that there were words that had been written in Albanian. In what? A Albanian? To Albania, yes. A connection huh. to Albania was thought to by some to be the most promising line of inquiry. Police also suggested that Klaps could have run away with her boyfriend or something similar. Klaps's older brother, Gildo, alleged the investigation into her sister's disappearance had been hindered by deference to prominent community figures. So Restivo's family, somewhat prominent, the church members, somewhat prominent. And they were just like, hey, we're going to not investigate this area. We're moving everything away to about 100 kilometers away from this in Salderno. Huh. Okay. So... In 1996, Restivo was tried for giving false information, so they did not try him for murder. They did not feel they had enough evidence for that, and they had not found the body. He also testified that he had met Claps in a curtained area behind the altar of the church before she left a few minutes later. So I did meet up with her, but she took off, and I don't know what happened to her after that, which seems like a very common way that this is... And in, like, a secret area. Right. But it seems like they always say, well, I did hang out with her, true, but she took off and somebody else did this. Right. That's never the case. He admitted that he had previously taken girls to a room on the first floor of the church. Ew. At that time, authorities tried Restivo and an Albanian man. Restivo alone was convicted and was sentenced to 20 months imprisonment and lost an appeal. Um, in 2010, the remains of Claps were found yards from the location within the church. The prosecution appealed the acquittal of Clapp's friend, and at a second trial, she was found guilty on a charge of perjury and sentenced to 14 months in prison. Oh my god. So they tried the fucking friend, and she got almost as much time as the actual killer got. Granted, they didn't, they didn't know he was the killer yet. But in Italy, as part of the Italian Code of Criminal Procedure, the accused in a presumed crime, or the, the accused in a crime is presumed innocent, and both the defendant and the prosecution can appeal the court's judgment. An appeal triggers what is essentially a trial de novo in which all evidence and witnesses can be re-examined. So you could appeal an acquittal? Yes. Wow. Correct. Which is what they did in the case of um, Amanda Knox. Oh. Okay. That? Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize they appealed the acquittal. Yes. Okay. Shit. So, the body. The priest that kind of covered all this over... The head priest at the time that this happened died in 2008 and denied Mm -hmm. ever being acquainted with Restivo. But a photograph 
of Restivo's 18th birthday party emerged showing this priest, Sabia, as one of the guests. Shocking. Subsequently, a few years later, in March of 2010, a body was found in the church in a brick alcove behind the bell tower. Forensic DNA analysis suggested the body was not that of Claps initially, but retesting of the body found that it was hers and strands of her own hair had been cut from her head shortly after her death and placed near her hands. Okay? Ew. So we have that link. Whoever the killer was enjoyed the hair thing, cutting the hair, dealing with the hair. Yeah. Italian investigation found DNA and other evidence indicating Restivo was the murderer of Claps. Her funeral service took place July 2nd, 2011, and the Holy Mass was celebrated by an Italian priest well known for his strong battles against the mafia and crime. Tons of people came from all over Italy to take part in this ceremony. Okay, so they found this body in 2010. Take a step back, okay? May 2002, Restivo arrived in England. So he's still free. They never convicted him of this crime of murdering Alyssa Claps. Okay. So he arrives in England. Okay. He takes off from Italy. He decides he wants to start a new life in England. He moves in with a Bournemouth woman. He lived across the street from Heather Barnett, a mother of two who worked from home as a seamstress. Restivo visited her flat November 6, 2002, to discuss having some curtains made. At that time, Heather Barnett's spare key went missing, Mm-mm. and this forced her to have her locks changed. On November 12, 2002, Barnett was found by her son and daughter, aged 14 and 11, when they came home from school. In the upstairs bathroom, she had been found bludgeoned to death with a hammer, and her breasts had been cut off and laid beside her head. Whoa. A lock of hair which was not Barnett's, had been placed in her right hand and some of her own hair was under her left hand. Further, the front door was unlocked, the car radio was still playing, and there were signs of struggle in the house. Hysterical, the children fled the house and were comforted by Restivo and his partner Uh. who helped them call police. Okay, so there's some twisted shit going on here. Yeah. And I have to wonder about guys that do stuff like this. What in their life have they seen and done to where they become obsessed and develop a fetish for something like this, right? I I think it's like an escalating thing. Like, you have something that gets you off, and then after so long, that isn't enough to get you off. It's like a drug addiction thing. Yeah. You always need more. You escalate. You constantly are escalating right. to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Okay. So this particular death was estimated to be shortly after Barnett returned home after taking her children to school that morning. Forensic investigation showed the killer had left very, very few traces of the crime scene apart from a green towel stained with blood. So they found this green towel in Heather's house and it was not her towel. So clearly huh. the killer had left this at the scene. And that's what they determined. Luminol tests showed a trail of bloody shoe prints that ended suddenly. That was thought to indicate the killer had changed his shoes before leaving Heather's house. Wow. So despite the fact that he was in very, very close proximity to Heather and had been to the house to talk to her on occasions prior to the murder, Restiva was not immediately a person of interest. Along with his Italian landlady, he was taken to Bournemouth Police Station on the evening of the 12th. 
with no translator to help the his roommate, the Italian landlady, translated for him. He produced a, a train ticket with a timestamp of 8.44 a.m. to support his alibi, which he claimed to have been on his way to a computer course at the time of the murder. Restivo was questioned by police in mid-2003 and released without any charges being filed. What? The detect right? So they determined he wasn't part of it because they had no proof. There was right. very, very little evidence left at that scene except for the blood-stained green towel, and they could right. not prove that he owned that green towel. So the detective heading the inquiry later said that Restivo gave the impression of being bumbling again. He pretends to be this kind of low-level intelligence, somewhat, you know, especially, you know, mentally challenged, and then they think, oh, he's just this dumb, you know, whatever. Right. But in fact, he is very conniving and very intelligent. In light of Restivo's connection to Clapp's disappearance and suspicious behavior, detectives then began to regard him as a chief suspect. But there was still not sufficient evidence at that point in time for a prosecution. So they're like, okay, he's kind of bumbling, but we're starting to get the sense that he is a very, very probable suspect in this murder. It was not until March of 2004, though, two years after the murder, that he was put under surveillance using electronic tracking and listening devices. The police at that point overheard Recibo being spoken to by his parents and female companion as if he were a child. So everyone treated him as though he was mentally challenged. Jeez. He was observed on repeated visits to a park where he was covertly filmed as he apparently stalked lone women. So very, oh, very God, suspicious, so creepy. super creepy behavior. And he sort of justified it by pretending like he was this kind of um, Forrest Gump type figure, right? Right. So what was interesting about these times that they were filming him was that they started to get alarmed because uniform patrol was ordered to stop and search Restivo because on a warm day, he was wearing a hoodie over his head and waterproof over trousers. So he's hmm. clearly getting his Dexter gear on, getting ready to do some shit right here because he got away with the other one. Right. Right. So now he's got to escalate it and got to have that feeling again. But when they searched his car, they found an identical change of clothing, a fillet knife, scissors, a mask for his face, and gloves. Holy shit. In June 2004, a schoolgirl identified Restivo as a man who had cut her hair on a bus. So meanwhile, all this other shit is just flooding in about people reporting him as somebody who cut her hair. Right. Still, nothing happened. But in November 2006, he was rearrested and his home was searched. Police found a lock of hair at that time. Trainers slash shoes he had worn on the day of the murder, because I know when European countries describe shoes as different things, but his shoes that he had worn yeah. on the day of the murder had internal traces of blood. Okay, you're wearing some shoes on the day of the murder, you clean those bad boys up, just fucking throw them away! <laughs> like, what the hell? Yeah, just throw them away. So... However, the blood itself could not be identified because it had been the shoes had been soaked in bleach. Mm, so they okay. just didn't have a kind of technology back then to like really further that and just narrow down who that blood belonged to. However, in 2008, new techniques revealed a blood-stained towel left at the murder scene had a DNA match for Recibo. So clearly, he had injured himself during that scuffle with Heather. And there was his blood on the towel as well as hers. Hmm. But he tried to sort of argue that away by saying, oh, I left the towel at the house accidentally from something else. And, and the blood is from 
his blood and her blood were on the towel, but he claims But what's he that, saying that he just, like, how did the blood get, how did his blood get there? Well, he said he had injured himself when he was at the house before to asking her about making curtains. Oh. And that somebody else had used that towel to sop up blood with Heather or something to that effect. He excused sure. it all away. And yet again, this evidence was still judged insufficient to prosecute him. Christ almighty. Okay. So... In a move that the prosecutors say was unrelated to the Italian investigation of Claps's death, it was suddenly decided that the evidence against Receiva was sufficient for prosecution. When the body of Claps was discovered in the church, it became clear that her friend had been telling the truth and she later testified via video link at Restivo's trial. Two months after the remains of Claps were found, Restivo was charged with the murder of Barnett First and foremost, okay. as the case drew international attention, women in the UK and Italy began to report to police widespread number of cases where a perpetrator matching Restivo had cut their hair on either a bus or in a cinema. So he was all over the place fucking cutting women's hair. Oh, in that's UK so and creepy. And as soon as he started to get prosecuted for this case, Barnett's case in, in, in Britain, people started coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, he cut my hair, he cut my hair, he cut my hair. So it was ruled that the English court could hear evidence that Recibo had murdered Claps in Italy and about the similarities of that murder with the murder of Barnett. So he was being prosecuted for Barnett and they were sort of interchangeably using that for the case that they were building against him for the death of Claps as well. Italian investigators testified to the English court that DNA recovered from the clothes on the body of Claps matched Restivo and was consistent with blood. In May 2011, Recibo was found guilty of murder, murdering Heather Barnett, and the judge sentenced him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Wow. Appealing against the whole life term, Recibo's lawyers argued the judge was wrong to take the Claps murder into account when sentencing Recibo for the murder of Barnett because he had not been actually proven to be the killer of Claps. Okay? Okay. So... In November of 2012, the Court of Appeal ruled in favor of Restivo and altered his minimum sentence to 40 years. But it is said to be very, very improbable that he will ever be released from prison. Wow. In 2014, Restivo appealed after against the decision that he should be deported, the Home Security having ordered his transfer to Italy, where he would be jailed for life. So he's still currently in the UK in prison. Yes. The Heather Barnett inquiry was the most extensive, complex, and sustained investigation ever carried out by the Dorset Police in England. It lasted nine and a half years and cost millions of pounds. Wow. During this time, police collected over 700 statements, 62,000 exhibits, and 7,000 documents. This man has also been linked to three unsolved murders in Southern Europe. Whoa. Fuck. And clearly his family knows... He's involved in something because they were covering for him from the beginning. So the, this case was very interesting for many, many reasons. But it's also interesting because they made legal history in this, during this case when the judge allowed evidence of the 1993 disappearance. So not a conviction of a 16 year old Alyssa Claps in southern Italy and the subsequent discovery of her remains in 2010. So they allowed the evidence of the disappearance and the remains discovered to be used as evidence in the trial of Heather Barnett in England. Wow. The jury heard similarities between the murder of Elisa Claps and Heather Barnett. In his defense, Recibo claimed that a host of medical reasons resulted in his memory of key events being poor. 
He said this is why he refused to answer critical questions from detectives and why his statements appeared to differ. So his statements were fucking all over the place because right. he was lying upon lie upon lie upon lie. The jury took less than five hours to find Danilo Restivo guilty of Heather's murder. And then, subsequently, in November 2011, a court in Italy tried Restivo for the murder of Elisa Claps, or Elisa, however you choose to say it. He was locked up in a British prison at the time, but was found guilty in his absence and sentenced to 30 years. So he is still in British prison. If, for some reason, if he ever gets out on parole, then they will deport him and he will be transferred to Italy to serve the 30 years. Wow. So... They don't typically give life sentences in a lot of these European countries for yeah. murder, as scary as that sounds. But that's, I think, what he was trying to appeal against was to block because he could potentially get parole at some point in England. Right. right? So he's trying to block them being able to take him out if he ever does get parole and take him to Italy and put him in jail for the prosecution of in absentia. Right. Of this other young lady in Italy. Wow. So... Very, very interesting stuff. There was history made during the course of this crime. The evidence was all over the place on this guy, but I think because he was all over England and, and Europe in general, that it was very, very challenging for them to um, put him in, in place. And he did certain things to sort of cover up the evidence, like bleaching the shoes and things of that nature. Well, and um, he had convinced but, everybody for so long that he was diminished capacity, too. Right. So he's just this bumbling idiot who's not capable of doing anything violent or dangerous or evil. But clearly they have also linked him to multiple cases across Europe. So he, I think he tra he was a serial killer and that he yeah. traveled all over the place and killed multiple women. I think it started when he was young with him cutting the hair and escalated into a murder type of a situation and that yeah. he killed many, many women. Gosh. that's and I believe that is a general theory as well, that he did kill multiple women in Europe. Wow. That's... And started in the 1990s, early 90s, and just travel all over. When he didn't get caught, he was like, hey, I can get away with this. I mean, for all we know, it started in the 90s. Maybe it started exactly. earlier. Well, I think he was 16 or 17 during that time. So, I mean, maybe it could have started right. earlier. But I think that in many instances, when you do have serial killers, they, they don't necessarily start that young. That's when they I mean, think usually, Ted Bundy's first crime was, first murder that was, though. He was 15. Perhaps. I don't know. It's really it's scary. It's kind of a yeah. scary thing, because especially when they when they sneak under the radar for so long yeah. as someone with diminished capacity. And then you find out that they're actually just this evil genius lurking beneath the surface. Yeah, for sure. OK, well, we're going to wrap up the episode for today on that note. This is where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our fun little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We love getting emails from you guys. They really help us gauge where we are with the podcast and what we can do to improve. Our email address is thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. Darcy, social media. We are at the BFD Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And please join us again next week when we talk more about these really insane cases and all these crazy little details, facts, and things that you guys love as much as we do. But in the meantime, good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys. <laughs>